And this time on a Wednesday, it's uh, shortly after the 11 o'clock hour, I am usually joined by Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer, and today is no exception. Both these gentlemen are in the studio with me for the program, or the part of this program we refer to as left, right, and center. Good morning to both of you. Morning. morning. Uh, I need to pick both your brains today because I'm uh, not as uh, up on this story uh, as perhaps I might be. It's not a story that particularly caught my attention, so I haven't followed it as much, but now it's moving into an area which is I find very interesting. It's the au pair case in the United States, of course, where the uh, the uh, defense counsel made a questionable move at, uh, at going for an acquittal on a murder charge rather than sticking with manslaughter, which had all sorts of other implications and, and, uh, and possibilities. He lost his gamble. The jury felt that uh, given the restrictions put on them, they only, they had to, you know, arrive at a, a verdict within certain parameters that the, they could not, uh, they could not acquit. Um, then a automatic sentence comes in of quite considerable length and so on for second degree murder. And now the judge has announced, uh, as he is, uh, has the authority to do, that he is going to override or overturn, I don't know what the correct turn of phrase is, the jury's decision and uh, he has changed it and said, no, she is uh, to be found guilty of manslaughter and is going to be released uh, under time served. Now, there's a much bigger issue here than did she or did she not kill this infant and so on. And, and, and I'm just very interested to find out from both of you gentlemen what you think about this idea that uh, we use the phrase the, the, the people have spoken when it, we're talking about a jury, for example. The jury has returned its verdict. They are... 12 good men and true, uh, you know, all of the cliches and so on, representing the community. Uh, they've been there, they've listened to all the evidence, and they have rendered their verdict. And suddenly, a judge comes along who disagrees and says, well, no, that doesn't count. It doesn't matter. The people's opinion doesn't matter. I either know more or, you know, whatever the rationale for the judge. Jeff, let me ask you, because you are the lawyer here this morning, how similar is the situation in the United States to a situation in Canada? If I were to be tried by a jury on something or other, and the jury came to such and such a, a decision, uh, could a Canadian judge do what this American judge has done and set that aside and say, no, no, I don't like what you've done, here's what's going to happen? Uh, well, my expertise is in civil law. As far as criminal law, I can't tell you for sure. But uh, certainly in civil law, a judge could do what uh, this judge has done, and uh, it's not that unusual for judges to overturn awards of damages, for instance. There's a rule of thumb in uh, Canada that uh, if a jury makes an award of damages that's too high or too low um, what the going rate is for a particular uh, injury by uh, more than uh, uh, half to a third that it will be overturned by uh, the judge. The other thing a judge also has the option of doing often is discharging a jury midway through a trial. Uh, if he's not happy with uh, the way things are going and believes that the case is too complicated for the jury or, or for whatever reason, a judge may say the jury's gone. And it's a, it's a fundamental um, distinction that we make between the right of people to be tried by their peers um, that is by people who are simil similar to them theoretically uh, and have the public decide issues versus having a so-called legal expert decide things. And there, there are tough implications either way. I think we've seen a similar situation with the Latimer case recently where the jury uh, came back and convicted of murder but on the basis that they wanted him to have a light sentence and found out the jury found out after they had convicted him that they have nothing to say about sentencing. And in this case it's a mandatory uh, minimum sentence imposed by law and I wonder if they had known about that prior to making their decision, if they would have decided differently. But isn't that the judge's responsibility to ensure that they did know the ramifications of the various verdicts they might come back with? Well, theoretically, in law, it's none of their business. All they're making is a finding of fact. 
that, that they're deciding what happened. And then from there on, the system takes over. And increasingly, we're finding our um, mandatory sentences. Uh, were, and, and that's something that judges are generally unhappy about because it takes away discretion. Uh, what the governments have, and politicians have been trying to do over the years is try and uh, get away from uh, situations where it's perceived that judges didn't act in the way that the public would like them to. So they're saying, well, in this kind of a thing, you're going to have to do this all the time. And uh, there's a maximum law that says that uh, hard cases make bad law. And that is that they'll always come along an exceptional case, something that's different than what everybody anticipated. And then if it gets sent through the sent through the machine, uh, at the other end, you end up with something that nobody wanted to have happen. Uh, and that's, that's a concern with mandatory sentences, um, because you may have uh, people sentenced to sentences that are much longer than, they, than anybody thinks is fair. And that's what sort of happened here. Robert Metz, what about this issue of the, the will of the people as expressed by a jury and being overridden or, or countermanded or modified? by a judge who in this in our this country at least is not elected is appointed uh, inherent dangers there well yes I don't think just quote the will of the people and quote is is any moral criteria of, of making an evaluation or a judgment I think that to the general question of should should a judge have a right to overrule a jury I would have to say I can't answer that in terms of just simply process if I was going to say yes to that then we would be placing process above justice so if I was going to answer the question on, on the basis of justice, I would have to say, well, then it depends on who's right. Is the judge right or is the jury right? And I can only support the person who, or the entity or the group that I would believe to be right. I think um, no matter how you look at it, we need some flexibility in our justice system because every case is so individualistically different from the next. We can't just group uh, murder as murder. You know, you kill somebody, it's all the same. No, it's not. A hundred murders is a hundred different circumstances, a hundred different people, a hundred different personalities. But isn't that the and purpose of a jury, though, is, is, is to take all of those factors into consideration? Very much so. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that the jury system is any more perfect than just having a judge. And I think justice is a, is a process of judgment and evaluation, and you have to look and weigh both the evidence and you have to base your judgment on some ethical system. But if you say, you say that uh, jury versus judge, I mean, you know, which, is, which has more validity? I can understand your argument if from, from day one we said, well, this case is going to be judged by a judge, period, end of story. Mm -hmm. I have a little trouble with the idea that, okay, we're going to put the jury, we're going to have a jury, we're going to pay a jury for one thing, we're going to disrupt the lives of all these jurors, and then at the end of the trial, if the judge, you know, on a whim decides he doesn't like the result, he can overrule and say, no, you're all wrong, and here's what's going to happen. I mean, that kind of troubles me. Why go through the, the, uh, the charade of the, of the jury having importance, having some kind of binding authority on this, if the judge can, at his discretion, decide that he didn't like what the jury did? I mean, why not just do it with the jury in the first place? Well, to be honest with you, it troubles me, too. And it troubles me a lot, because I, I would tend, in most cases, to go with the jury. But consider if we were in a moral climate where people just wanted to get even with every person. I think there's a lot of lot of uh, anger out there at our justice system for cases that are obviously uh, too lenient in a mm -hmm. lot of cases. And we may discover that juries are going the other direction in, in, in cases where the punishment just doesn't fit the crime, regardless of the you know, based on the original circumstances. Mm -hmm. But certainly, I've got to agree with you, I'm not comfortable with it either. And it always comes down to our own personal judgments and how we're going to react to these and which side we're going to support. I don't think that, doesn't matter how many laws, how many regulations, how many rules you have in place, everything boils down to a moral judgment. 
And depending on whether you agree with the judge or whether you agree with the jury, it's totally going to be up to what your personal values and what you see as a purpose of justice being. Robert Metz and Judge Schlimmer, our guests this morning in Left, Right, and Center. And a quick reminder, too, you're always welcome to join us. We'd like to know what you think, your, your, your questions, your comments. Give us a call at 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel. Back to talk more with Schlemmer and Metz and with you right after this. It's Left, Right, and Center, a special feature on this program every Wednesday morning. And thank you to all those of you who've been calling and writing and telling us how much you enjoy uh, this particular portion of the program. Uh, people have been asking, are we going to keep it up? And uh, we intend to, as long as our two uh, guests are willing to stay with us. We're more than happy to have them come in every week and, uh, and do this particular part of the program. 643-1290 is the telephone number. Star 1290 on the Cantel. We've invited you to join us. And caller Jim has something yes, to say. Uh, I do enjoy this segment very much. Uh, like uh, like Bob, I have a serious problem with this because society builds a system and says that this is the way it should be, and the judges are basically our mouthpieces for enforcing the law that society has deemed to be the way it should be. Yet, as a third party, from their own perspective, they go ahead and change it. Now, as a manager, I've taken many, many courses, and, and I'm sure some of you know about the hot stove rule or the approach to management. The hot stove rule is, when a burner's on in my house, it's hot. You know that. You know the law. If you touch it, you get burned. And the effects of that burn have to be felt. Mm -hmm. No one can change it. And when you look at the states with the Supreme Court down there, when Mr. Bur Mr. Borg wanted to be nominated, he believed in natural law, that if you jump out of the airplane, I mean, you're, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. No third party can come <laughs> in and intervene and say, well, that's not the way it should be. Yeah. If Parliament makes the laws that go into the criminal code, the judge has to enforce this. And if we have a jury system that says he's found guilty, that's the end of it. You have to go through the whole route of changing the law going back through Parliament. What if the jury does not follow the law in arriving at their conclusion? And that happens, doesn't it, Jeff, sometimes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. What if the jury doesn't follow the law, and yet it has the, it has the authority, it has the weight of being, again, those 12 good people and true, and uh, they say, and we've heard it said, you know, we, we believe that the law was inadequate or we believe that the law was inappropriate here, and this is our decision, this is our adjudication. What about when that happens? Then he's set free. Because the, the system we have right now is that the jury decides guilt or innocence. So you have to then go full circle and change that okay. system. Often the only way we can even challenge a law or, you know, that we may regard as unjust is to challenge it in the court system. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, you know, there's, there's always this debate between whether, again, the broader picture, should the courts be supreme or should Parliament be supreme? Oh, I, believe, I believe in parliamentary supremacy. Well, I, again, I, 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 I have to agree with you because I think it has to be kind of a balance. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, and it is a balance, the way it's been working, but sometimes we don't like where it's going. Not, not lately it hasn't. Well, because, the balance is in Because on one hand, the, the judge, on one hand, the judge in the, in the, um, the abortion case with the drugs has ruled that it's not up to us to determine to, to in, um, determine the law, it's up to Parliament, but the next day they'll determine the law on something else. Either it is or it isn't. Well, I'm not going to dispute with you, Jim, that there's all kinds of inconsistent judgment made and, and, and that one piece of logic doesn't follow the next. That's a, that's a whole yeah. separate issue, I think. 
But as to the basic principle of, of whether Parliament or the courts should be supreme, uh, I think there has to be some kind of balance there. If, if there isn't, let's put it this way, if it's strictly Parliament, then individuals are kind of left out of the whole ball game. But isn't that where the Charter comes in then? Well, theoretically, if, but the whole point is the only time you'd be, you would be uh, challenging the lawmakers is when they actually violate the Charter, as they do all the time. Exactly. And so that's where you have to go, is into the court system. But when you, when, when you look at the different kinds of laws that we have, like, you know, you look at common law, you look at parliamentary law and criminal code law and, and the torts that we have, the Charter has come into Canada, which has superseded Parliament. And the judges then go back to the Charter saying, no, this, this law is wrong. See, I, I disagree with that. You should bear in mind that the Charter is only part of the Constitution, that uh, we've always had a tradition that uh, governments have been subject to the, con the BNA Act since 1867, and there have been all kinds of constitutional cases where judges have said that Parliament couldn't enact a certain law because it was ultra-virus. But not, but not to the effect that the Charter has come along. I, oh, there's been more now. I, I agree that our charter is an incredibly flawed instrument and, and certainly should not be, uh, in the sense, that because of that, held above Parliament in that sense. But that, that again, is another issue. Since, uh, since 1982, we've had this problem. We're going to have it for a while. Jim, we have to leave it there. Appreciate your call, sir. 643-1290 is the telephone number. Star 1290 on the Cantel. This is Left, Right, and Center with Jeff Schlemmer on the left, Robert Metz on the right, and me somewhere God only knows where I am. Um, Jeff, I want to come back again and just pick your legal b mind a little wee bit. Um, and, and you've indicated, of course, your area of expertise is not is not criminal law per se. But if a judge does overrule a jury, um, does he have to recount uh, in law where the jury erred? I mean, does he have to say, "I'm doing this because uh, this, uh, you know, the law was either breached or abridged or, or distorted here and here and here and here"? Or is it enough for him simply to say, "I just don't think it's appropriate"? Uh, no, he can't do that. He has to give a reason for why he's doing it. The reason, of course, is that there could be appeals beyond that. Uh, everything that every judge does, except for the Supreme Court of Canada, is subject to an appeal and to review. So uh, judges are encouraged to give as much reason as, as they can for why they're doing what they do. And uh, what Jim was saying, I, I think, uh, is indicative of, a, of the real problem at the root of justice, and that is how do you balance predictability and knowing everybody knows what the law is, we can all get up in the morning and know that know the way our day is going to go because we know that what the laws are, that we know that red light means stop, it's not going to mean go some days. Mm -hmm. You want that predictability, but you also want some safeguards in case somebody gets caught in the clogs that everybody thinks shouldn't be there, uh, and the question of how you balance that. And at the end of the day, it sort of comes back to uh, something I've said before in the program, who do you trust? You know, at the end of the day, do you trust judges? At the end of the day, do you trust politicians passing mandatory sentences or so on? At the end of the day, do you, pa do you trust uh, 12 uh, men and women good and true? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. Well, I think the answer comes down to, we've, we've been at this point before on, on previous discussions, it, it comes down to your own judgment. You can only trust your own judgment. And, uh, you know, even other people's judgments, you're going to only judge against your own. So the one person you're going to trust, obviously, is the person you agree with. And it always, again, comes back to that fundamental. You just can't escape yeah, it. It's yeah, axiomatic. Yeah. But theoretically, you'd so, like, ideally, presumably, you'd like a decision that reflects, uh, I don't know if the majority of, of Canadians, for instance, is a, you want a community of some kind. You want a touchstone to say, we'd like our what, decision what? makers to do something based on objectivity. You're, yeah. you're, what, you're, what you're asking for is a call for objectivity, and that's absolutely essential, both in law and in the examination of the evidence. But sometimes, you know, when, when there's a wrong judgment made by a judge or a jury, there, there's usually, 
you know, very serious reasons for it. It could be lack of sufficient evidence. It could be evasion of evidence that, that won't mm -hmm. be included. And it might be the inclusion of considerations other than the facts of the case. There might be other considerations that go into the evaluation system. So there's all kinds of things that can lead to a false judgment. Okay, let's go back to the telephones where Tom is waiting. Good morning, Tom. Hello, Tom. <laughs> Tom, you don't have to dial. You're already here. Well, we've lost Tom for whatever reason. Uh, this is Left, Right, and Center on Talk of the Town with Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm not all that familiar with this case uh, in the States, and it is a different legal system, but uh, an awful lot of uh, uh, concern being expressed here that, uh, first, the jury was not properly informed, so their verdict could not properly represent their will, and then the judge saying, well, not only am I going to reduce the charge, I'm also going to reduce the time. Uh, no reference there as to what the jury might have requested had they had all the information. But, Jeff, you say that in law... Yeah, that's really not germane, that it's not their, it's not their point to be concerned about the length No, they're of time. not asked about sentence, only findings of fact. Why then so often do we have juries come back with a recommendation for leniency, for example? Or uh, do we never, is it just my imagination, or do we not sometimes have juries coming back and saying, well, we find him guilty of such and such, and we suggest that he get two or three years or whatever the case may be? Well, sure, and in, in lots of cases, uh, the, the sentences are up to the judge. So uh, it's not like a mandatory sentence. The judge can decide whatever they want. And if a, ju if a jury makes a recommendation, then that's likely to have some weight with a judge. And one of the things about judges you have to bear in mind is that judges, at the end of the day, would like to sort of be reflecting Canadian values. They don't want to get too far away from what the rest of us think. If they do, then they run the danger of, uh, of being uh, obsolete. And that's happened over the years that uh, several hundred years ago in England, uh, the uh, courts of chancery became so bound up in procedure uh, that they were basically inaccessible. They had such technical laws that people didn't want to go there. They started going to courts of equity instead. It was just a much better place to get your problem solved. Mm -hmm. uh, and judges run that same risk and are sensitive to public opinion in some respects, although theoretically they're not. One thing I wonder about with this case, though, is that uh, it's one thing for the judge to take the, uh, take the decision away, and in order to achieve a result, that is, avoiding a life sentence, he changes what the finding of fact was and says it's manslaughter instead of second-degree murder. Uh, it might have been good if instead of simply saying, I'll let her off with time served, if he had said, you're still going to have to serve another year or two years or something, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. say, you walk out the door today would seem to be a slap in the face to the jury to me. 643-1290. What do you think? If you've been following this case in the United States, the so-called au pair case, uh, the young woman from England who uh, alleged, allegedly uh, uh, killed this little boy by shaking him, um, if you've been following that, how do you feel about the fact that it was a walk away? As far as the judge is concerned, now she's done. She's done her time, guilty of manslaughter. Thanks for coming out. Now she, on the other hand, is saying, no, that's not good enough. Uh, I'm not guilty even of manslaughter. I'm not guilty of anything. Uh, what recourse should someone in her situation have, Jeff? Or maybe you can tell us in Canada, what recourse would she have? Say, say it's me, and I'm arrested for something, and there's a jury trial, and the jury says such and such and so and so, and the judge says, no, that's wrong. He's not guilty of that. He's guilty of this, and I'm going to sentence him to such and such. Um, and, uh, with the assumption that he's reduced the charge and reduced the thing. But I'm innocent. I didn't do it. What recourse do I have then? I mean, do I, do I go after the jury for the original verdict? Do I appeal the judge's verdict? What, what, what do I do? Where do I go? Uh, well, again, if, if it's a question of fact, uh, you just say, I just didn't do it. You know, you've made a finding that I did something I just didn't do, then technically you appeal it. Although, in the criminal justice system, like the civil system, there's immense pressure to settle. 
there's always intense pressure because you don't want that uncertainty of throwing uh, yourself on the mercy of a jury or a judge. If you can work out a, a uh, resolution, a deal that uh, gives you certainty and that you can live with, there's, there's just extraordinary pressure brought to bear to try and achieve that. Um, so, for instance, you see the, uh, the idea of pleading to a manslaughter charge instead of murder charge. That happens all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, the vast majority of cases end up being guilty pleas to a lesser uh, charge. Now, that's unsatisfying for the public as well in some respects because they say, well, this person seems to have done this bad thing, and yet the Crown isn't even going to uh, insist uh, on convicting them of that. That's where I have a problem with the whole sentencing system, and that's why I think juries and judges are often backed into a corner. And because there's not enough flexibility or realization in the laws themselves of the massive differences in the types of cases they mm -hmm. have before them. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to note that in cases particularly like this, that it's so often a death of a child that's involved. Yeah. Because yeah. children, uh, whether we want to admit it or not, they don't have rights like adults do. They're, they have a totally separate status in society. And... Uh, our courts reflect this, even though we may morally be abhorrent or want to want to equate the the, the killing of a two-year-old child with the with the killing of a thirty-year-old adult. Um, oh, they're much different. Treated much well, differently. Well, absolutely, yeah. And 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 most often, deaths are of of infants and children are caused by the mother. Um, I was shocked at some statistics that Dr. Laura brought up on one of the shows. Mm -hmm. I think she said like two mothers kill their kid every day in the United mm -hmm. States, yeah. and they're generally treated very leniently. Um, I remember a local case here where a mother uh, killed some of her kids and they accepted all kinds of mystical reasons for yeah. for her to, to just to use any kind of reason to get her off the hook mm -hmm. because there's something inherent in people that just is abhorrent about putting a mother in jail for 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 uh, infanticide or something like that. Isn't it, isn't it, isn't it like curious, that. though, that we, we speak so much and we do so much in society to protect the children? I mean, you know, you ask any individual what's the most precious resource we have, what's the most important part of our society, and I submit to you, most people would say our children. We bend over backwards to protect them at every level. We get incensed and, at the yet, idea that they're being and victimized. And yet, what do we mean when we say protect? We mean we take away their rights well, yeah. and, and we take over their lives. That's and, what we're but, saying. But when one of them is killed, as you point out, yeah. particularly by a family member, then suddenly it's different. It's not somehow as serious as it is. It's not that serious. And we see a case after case after case of women who are, you know, released uh, without having done any time, even though they're found guilty and so on, or they do minimal amounts of time. It's always struck me as a curious dichotomy in a society where we allow those two realities to happen side by side. Let's go back to the phones with caller Andrew. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, Jim. Fine. How are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. So? Not just fine, thanks. I'm just wondering, um... Very shocked was her lawyer, and he said, and he didn't want the jury deciding on manslaughter was either murder or nothing. Yeah, like, I don't, is that the same in Canada? Uh, yeah, sure. In terms of that, that was uh, an issue in the Latimer case as well, I believe. Mm -hmm. A question of whether it should be murder or whether it should be manslaughter, and I think that the distinction is premeditation. That is, uh, did you do it on purpose, or did the person get killed as a result of something you did, but you didn't specifically intend to kill him? Uh, and in Latimer, of course case, of course, they found, yeah, uh, clearly uh, Robert Latimer did intend to kill his daughter, so it had to be uh, first or second degree murder. It couldn't be manslaughter. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Andrew. Bye-bye. Now, I think he was one of the... Wasn't he involved in the Simpson case as well? Very sure. Yes, he was. Yes, he was part of that team. I yeah. have to say, I'm, my policy is that I don't read bad news in the paper, <laughs> so I didn't follow the Simpson case, so I didn't really follow this case. Yeah, well, I must... I confess the same thing. I didn't follow either one of them either. Here again, it's this backing into the corner, you know, if if... if the counsel for the defense decided to go for the murder or nothing, they were gambling. 
And uh, the gamble obviously didn't pay off in this case, and the judge recognized that, and he probably had to think to himself, well, what would this young woman normally have gotten if this had proceeded on a normal case? Mm -hmm. And uh, he has to weigh that, because if, if she went to jail on, uh, on the basis of murder or nothing, then she's really being punished not for the act that she did, but for the process by which she decided to defend herself. That, but so that, the, that so again, if you, go, if you go to Las Vegas, for example, and run up a debt at the tables, you owe that money. You gambled there, too. Gambled and lost under the laws of the United ah, States, but at that's least. A, that's a totally different... I don't think you compare that. That's apples and oranges. Why? Maybe. Well, that's not an... There... It's not just it's not justice in the woman's case in this case. Whereas a gambling situation, it is justice. You entered in basically into a contract, and you're just honoring your contract. But and didn't she do the same thing implicitly, Jeff? Didn't her lawyer enter into a contract? He said, "Here's the deal. Uh, we're going to take this chance. We agree to make this gamble, and you know, we st if we win, she walks. If we lose, she does time." It's the same thing, isn't it, Bob? I mean, they, they knew going in what they were doing. They knew what the stakes were. Well, they know it, but, uh, but I guess there is a distinction. It may be interesting. Maybe in Las Vegas there should be some sort of court of public opinion, and for particularly hardship cases, <laughs> lose all their money down there, they should be relieved. Well, as, you, as you say, Jeff, hard, hard cases make for bad law, although I don't, don't know how you would justify that in your support of things like welfare and stuff, because that's a whole, whole <laughs> system topic. based on, on hard cases. But... Yeah. Uh, Nevertheless, again, I think we're backed in the corner because of the few choices of the way the justice system works. Now, I'm not a legal expert in terms of how the United States, uh, you know, justice system actually works, but I am interested in knowing that people who are going to jail are there, you know, that the punishment fit the crime and that, that I mean, what, what does society gain by putting a young girl like this in a situation like this into jail for whatever life it means but you down could, there? But you could use that, that argument in any case. You could say, oh, here's a young fellow who killed a couple of people and robbed a store, but what's the point of putting him in jail? I mean, what's served by doing that? One of the things that really distinguishes criminal law from all other law in Canada is that we have a code for criminal law, and you talk about the lack of choices, and, and to some extent that's built right into the system that for every area, other area of law we have, um, we have statutes and regulations. Uh, there is lots of law that, that is not passed by any government. Tort law, for instance, uh, you won't find uh, uh, tort law written down anywhere. That is the right to sue somebody if they hurt you or, or wreck your stuff. That's judge-made law that has evolved over the centuries in common law, whereas the criminal code is based on uh, something like the Napoleonic Code, which uh, they have in France and in Quebec, uh, where they try and codify all the potential circumstances that could arise and exactly what's going to happen if they arise. So we've got hundreds of sections in the code, and the theory of it is that it provides much more certainty, but the downside is that you don't have that flexibility to deal with a case that comes along that doesn't really fit into those sections. Well, unless the flexibility is built in. But um, getting back to your comparison there, Jim, about uh, comparing a, a person like this lady in the, in the States to a person who robs a store, I mean, that's the point of having a judge and jury system. You look at all the evidence. You can't say murder, period, don't look at all the circumstances surrounding it. That's what the whole system's but for. But your point was... And it's not going to be perfect. Yeah, but your point was, what's the point of putting her in jail? So let's, let's, let's let me, maybe I stated my case a little too strongly, but what if it was a young person who did what she did, who did, in fact, kill this child? Well, I meant, what's the point in putting her in jail for the same period of time that we would put, uh, say, a mass murderer in jail? Oh, good point. Okay. Let's talk about lack of flexibility, Jeff, in our, in our legal system here in Canada, in the, with the Latimer case in particular. Here's a situation where the, the the jury came back with, uh, uh, you know, yes, he's guilty, absolutely, manslaughter, or not manslaughter, second-degree murder. We, we, we understood the parameters of that. We understood the instructions from the judge. This is what we believe. Yes, our finding is that he is guilty. Now the law steps in and says, okay, now that you've done that finding, 
there's no more flexibility. He's got to do X number of years. I mean, that's what we that's what we do in this case. And yet, as Bob quite rightly points out, every case is different from every other case. Um, at one point, uh, I don't know, a week or so ago, when they were first talking about this, they said perhaps the Minister of Justice could step in and, 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 and waive this or something. Now they're talking maybe the judge has the ability to do it and so on. Where do we stand in, in, in Canada in that kind of a situation? Is a mandatory sentence always a mandatory sentence? Uh, virtually always. Like there, there is a theoretical out that's available. Uh, I understand it. Again, it's outside my expertise, but it's extremely rarely used. However, one of the things that's, that happens uh, in all the laws, the law evolves. Things come up that nobody had thought about before, and we have seen this move by Parliament and by, by politicians to say we're unhappy because the public uh, perceive that judges are giving too light sentences in these cases. Therefore, we're going to step in and take that power away from judges and say everybody's getting the same thing, we don't care what. Um, then the law will evolve because some cases like these will come along where the public may say that's not really what we want to achieve here. The unfortunate part about uh, law for me is that you ha somebody has to be the, the guinea pig mm -hmm. for this to happen. You can't uh, just go to a court and say we don't like this law in a theoretical sense. There's got to be a person under the microscope. Uh, and, and the law probably will evolve at this point. The government is saying that they don't want to get involved in Latimer and understandably so. Politically yeah. it's just a uh, powder keg. But uh, eventually that will probably occur. But, uh, but there, And the other thing is that there's there's constant struggle between judges and governments about who runs things. Uh, I'm sure Bob will have views about the Supreme Court of Canada and the judicial activism and the way that uh, Antonio Lemur, the Chief Justice, seems to have become much more active around social policy than historically they had been. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so you've got that struggle between the government trying to uh, deal with policy issues and the courts increasingly doing that. Um, and where that shakes out, who knows? I think that there's a pendulum that will swing from one end to the other. There are cases like this that will be unsatisfactory. Uh, there'll be a move to, to deal with those uh, and loosening things up. Then there'll be some unsatisfactory cases where, again, a judge passes a sentence which everybody just goes, how in the world could he do something like that? We've got to have certainty. Uh, in the States, we've seen the three strikes law brought in in California where now if you're convicted of three felonies, it's a mandatory life sentence. And some of these felonies can be quite minor, and we've seen cases where the person commits the third technical felony, mm -hmm. but it's quite a minor thing, and the mm -hmm. way they go for life... Uh, again, certainty versus uh, versus safeguards. But, it, but isn't isn't there a certain advantage to certainty? At least if we look at uh, if we look at the law as being at least partially there to dissuade people from from breaking the law. Isn't there a certain sure. advantage to certainty? Say everybody knows. Uh, for example, if you are a three-time loser, if you are three felony convictions, it doesn't matter what the felonies are, and there we grant there are various types and so on, but everybody knows up front, going in, do it three times, you're gone. Oh, sure. Uh, I think the difficulty is that, uh, same with Latimer again, that uh, he knew what he was getting into when he did it, knew exactly what the consequences would be, but I think that there's a perception that public opinion wouldn't necessarily support seeing that through to its logical conclusion. And, and I think as well that there's a difference between talking about it in a theoretical sense versus being the one who actually flips the switch. Of course, there's uh, thousands of people on death row in the United States, and people may agree that's, that they're there, but if you were the one to flip the switch, you'd look at it a lot more closely and maybe more sympathetic in some of the cases. I don't know. Uh, um, so, so that's a question of, of how do you balance that. It's like, yeah, they knew what they were getting into, but now it seems harsh. This is Talk of the Town in 1290 CJBK. Left, right, and center is what we call this particular portion. Comes your way every Wednesday from 11 till noon. Uh, Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz, my guests, will continue our conversation. And Ian joins us. Good morning, Ian. Good morning. Uh, yes, one of your guests said that uh, the judges try to reflect uh, the public's opinion in their sentencing. I think that nothing could be further from the truth or... We wouldn't have organizations springing up like Caveat, and I, I want to hear from 
Yeah, interesting point. What about that, Jeff? That uh, or, you, know, you did say they strive. Is it just that they don't make it too often? or uh, Maybe I could say that's the theory. And, uh, of course, the whole question of judges and where they come from is a very controversial one. For instance, uh, there's a question of how are judges appointed. And, of course, in Canada, they are all appointed. They're not elected. And the reason for that is because we theoretically want to have them a little removed from the political spectrum in order to be a little less superheated, if you like. And theoretically, they, they have a better chance to have sort of sober reflection. On the other hand, the appointment of judges is still a very political process. Um, if you're going to be appointed a judge, uh, the odds are almost certain that you'll be a member of the party that uh, is, is the government of the day. Um, and uh, there's a lot of question about whether judges reflect the community. For instance, judges are invariably uh, wealthy people. Um, they're usually white males still. Um, and do they, do they reflect the community? Can they? Um, the theory is that they may not be members of the community, or at least, at least they may not be from the community per se, mm -hmm. but that they're smart enough that they can figure out what the community would like. Uh, <laughs> now there's a leap of faith. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think a large part of the, the problem with reflecting public opinion and sentencing, and to relate to Ian's concern about all the groups that are springing up, of which I'm aware of many, uh, this again deals with the hard cases, mostly. It's those cases that we find as outrageous where some mass murderer is allowed to come up for a hearing every little while to determine whether he should be going on parole or getting out. <laughs> remain nameless or yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. Not. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's absolutely absurd, and I can understand people's reaction to that. Uh, the, 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 the Carla Homolka deal, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> Although, ironically, none of these are, these are judges. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Clifford Olson case is one where it's the law requires that he get this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, Homolka case, the judge had nothing to do with the plea bargain. You know, that was the government and the crowd. Uh, and again, that, that relates back, I'm glad you reminded me, that relates back to something before the, the commercial there where you were talking about uh, we want to have that certainty of a certain fixed law above us. But I think even within that fixed law, you can build discretion into the system. And when you worry about how much or how little, well, when you give discretion, you set a maximum and you set a minimum. The judge can't go over it, can't go under it. And, I mean, what that minimum or, minimum or maximum discretion is is always going to be a dispute and will probably change all the time. Okay, last word to you, Ian? Yes. Um, forget about the Carla Mulca case. I'm just talking about, for example, rape, which they call sexual assault. Now, the sentences are getting to be a joke. Uh, 30 days, can he serve it on weekends because he coaches a team? And uh, is, Shouldn't there be some sort of a minimum in there that uh, maybe uh, that uh, society would be happy with? Maybe not everyone would be happy with, but at least uh, I, I know I've gone in my lifetime from 10 years sentence for rape to to 30 to 60 days. There's mm -hmm. <laughs> well, look at the guy in Maple Leaf Gardens there. Uh, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and by the way, in provincial, uh, under provincial law, he only serves one year of that. Yeah. And he can actually go into a halfway house after a couple of months. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, are you suggesting that every rapist gets that same kind of a sentence? I, I don't think that, that's a, that's a blanket sentence to everyone, is it? I'm not so sure, though. If you're talking about a, 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 a crime that is as capable of specific definition as rape, um, what kind of extenuating circumstances might there be? Well, that's what I'm wondering. That's why I can't even figure out why someone could get a, a sentence just for to serve on weekends and stuff like that. There's got to be something going on there that uh, we don't know know mm. about. And that's what's making it a little difficult to to arrive at any hard conclusion about all of this is because we're really talking about vague 
uh, generalities in terms of specifics of a. Uh, but that's a good example, though, where nobody's ever said that uh, sentences should be lighter. Uh, you know, uh, I've talked to trial judges often about things like that, and uh, where they feel, or where they give sentences that, are, that seem too light to me, anyway. And they say, well, the problem is that if I don't give that, I'll be overturned by the court of appeal. And it's like, well, the court of appeal has given some guidance, but on the other hand, so what? <laughs> so try it, try it yeah. out, and see what happens. If all yeah. the trial judges start giving stricter sentences, that'll become the new norm. Uh, but it's not government policy. Uh, the judges don't have a centralized uh, uh, place where they get uh, direction from or anything. They do whatever they want, theoretically. And, and I think, in fact, um, so it's funny because it is a situation that's very vague. Nobody's ever sat down and really thought about that. And thank you for your call today. Good to have you on the program with us. I want to come back to that, to the rape issue, and again, he, the, that's not the terminology they use, but it, it, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe you guys can help, help me, but I look at you look at a murder situation, as you said earlier, Bob, every case is different, and there are all kinds of extenuating circumstances, from situations where it's a, a, you know, a rage that may have been building for years because the other person did all sorts of terrible sure. things, to the point where somebody gets paid to hold a gun to somebody's head and pull a trigger, and all of the things in between, all of them conspire to end a life. But totally different circumstance. But when we look at a specific crime, like, for example, uh, robbing a bank or, well, even though, let's go to the rape thing, raping someone. If you do, in fact, impose yourself physically on another person against their will, uh, and let's talk about male, female here, it's pretty clear cut that's what happened. Um, if you are convicted, if the jury looks at all the evidence and says, well, he did it. He did it. We know he did it. We know what the crime is. Why would we expect to have a variety of sentences? Is that not an area where we might very well be able to say, you get convicted of this, you're gone for 10 years, period, end of story? I think it largely can come down to the definition of a, even a simple word like rape. I think it depends on, again, the conditions. How much consent or lack thereof existed? Was it a violent rape? Was it sort of a... Uh, date rape where maybe there was some consent assumed but the jury decided in the end well yeah this person's guilty mm -hmm. uh, was it uh, I mean there's all sorts of issues was it statutory rape where consent actually was there uh, but the one person wasn't legally able to give consent to answer I can't I can't answer a single question certainly where a person violently imposes themselves upon someone else that's the most serious of all crimes but in today's uh, a uh, strange environment. Sometimes what's called rape uh, by one person means something totally different to another. And uh, we're hearing more and more horror stories about the kind of people that are getting convicted of, of what we're calling rape that mm -hmm. some of us might not. So I'm uncomfortable I'm with that particular uh, just blanket use of that term. I, I'd rather know more details of, of the case. What about the issue of statutory rape? I mean, is, is that a valid concept today that, uh, that uh, in, in, I mean, I don't think there'd be any argument if it was a, you know, a five or six or seven or eight-year-old, but we hear stories of 13 and 14-year-olds who get involved with adults and so on, who are, uh, we have to assume, are capable of making some decisions in their life. In fact, they make many decisions in their lives, and yet that's one decision we don't allow, Your no matter, you know, matter what amount of consent is involved, it's automatically wrong because, as you said, Bob, they're not capable of giving that consent. Is that still valid, do you think, Jeff, at the end of the 20th century? Uh, it's, it's certainly a really tough one, and people, uh, uh, particularly politicians, I think, would like to avoid it at all costs because, again, you get into where do you draw the line, and it's like if it's an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old, you know, uh, four-year age difference, uh, later in life, that kind of a difference means nothing at all. Uh, but on the other hand, we're, we're trying to preserve this, this perhaps obsolete notion of children as being somehow more pure than the rest of us uh, and, and not 
and, and, and able to be victimized a lot easier. I don't know. Well, I think there's a, even a broader issue than that. I think when you're talking about a wide age difference uh, in people, that there's a power differential, and you have to take that into consideration. And, and young children are not in a position to fully comprehend. They might intellectually perceive it. You might be able to explain it to them. Mm -hmm. But to actually comprehend, listen, you might get pregnant, and you're going to have to look after this other kid for the rest of your life. You know, you're going to... These things are not too impressed upon the very young and when someone older takes advantage of that situation or doesn't take it into consideration or isn't responsible for their actions which I think just by nature of the whole issue they cannot be um, this, these are other reasons that we have to be very careful again with our definitions of rape even even where adults uh, often have a huge differences in age you can have problems in relationships so can you you can imagine how that would be magnified at the earlier ages in life i think one of the biggest difficulties of rape is because it is so subjective it, it really is the all or nothing case often at least that it's one person's word against the others mm -hmm. and a judge flips a coin and uh, i know senior judges have told me that uh, that anybody who tells you that they can tell if someone is lying uh, is mistaken because if yeah. the stakes are high enough, we can all lie extremely well. Well, we see we see evidence of that every day. People who uh, people who are actors on television and in the movies are essentially lying, and uh, we know how good some of them are. <laughs> oh, you know, sure. they absolutely you know you you walk away from that absolutely believing in that characterization. So you're quite right. You you can't say that you can always tell when somebody's lying if they're skillful enough. You can't tell. And it's hard because it's high stakes and it's highly emotional and it's highly uh, a moral issue and yet you just don't know the answer. So Sometimes I wonder if we need some new words in the English language because to me when I hear the word rape I immediately imply a violent act, yeah. uh, um, something like that. And yet we still use the same word when we apply it to a, a nonviolent situation, but just where the power differential is so great mm -hmm. because of age. So I don't know what word we could invent to properly describe that, but there is a, certainly a difference in judging a person who's extremely violent. I want to come back to where we were almost an hour ago, where we first kicked this off, which was to uh, we were talking about the appropriateness of a judge being able to overturn this. I'm not sure that we came to any conclusions as we went along, and obviously we, we expanded our conversation. That's fine, because that's what we do here. Mm. But let's go back to that again, if we can. Now, Bob, you said at one point that it all comes down to who do you trust. Who should we trust, the judges or the juries? Well... In any specific case, I can't make that decision unless I'm sitting in the courtroom and I know all the evidence and the fact. I, I want to think that our system of judgment is based on objectivity and, and even in so far as the values it operates on, I want to know that those values are objective and not subjective values. And so, to me, that's the constant evolution and working we have to do on our justice system. It's a constant... Uh, evolving process. We're going to test the system through the courts. We're going to test it through the political system. Um, it's all a, a balance of power and checks and balances which we need. We don't want to see power concentrated in one area in government or in our justice system. How can we ensure there's some consistency though if we have this incons inherent inconsistency in the system that we want checks and balances and we don't want this individual or this group to be able to to say yada 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 without the other individual or group being able to say no that's not the way it is how do we establish any kind of consistency in our in our uh, application of the law? Well you can have you can have consistent principles if you're if you if your consistent principle is that you're going to look at the evidence you're going to base it on the certain of values, then you may arrive at slightly different um, judgments with individual cases, but that will be because of the evidence, not because you've changed your principles. It's because the evidence has applied to the principle. It's a different mix. You know, every time you're mixing it, you're getting a different result. 
So I can take principle X and mix it with evidence Y, and principle X and mix it with evidence B. I'll get two different results, but I'm still operating on the same principle. That makes sense, Jim? Uh, it does, except that it, to, to put it in practice is extremely hard. It's like Certainly. always you say we're going to set up the rule, and from now on, this is the way things are going to be, and then invariably it's going to be, okay, we have to make this exception, then we have to make that exception, and then it's like, well, we really didn't want to get into doing this, but we have to, and then you go back and say, okay, but from now on, we're really serious. This well, is the way it's well, really going to be. Well, when you start making too many exceptions, that's when you can start examining your principle. That's when you're probably, mm -hmm. the problem is, wait a minute, let's go back to our premises the principle I'm operating on may be incorrect because I have to make too many exceptions and then then if that's what you're doing you're not operating on principle this is left right and center with uh, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer Jeff uh, a final question to you I guess are we are we moving in a direction to make this any better or are we just kind of fluttering around waiting to see what's going to happen in terms of the way the system is moving uh, I'd say we're fluttering around and we're, we're grasping right now again at trying new things like uh, like mandatory sentences, uh, trying things, uh, different things in terms of sentencing. But I think that fundamentally it comes down to a question of are there cases where the heart should have a role as opposed to just the head? And those are the cases where traditionally juries have come in. And I think that the public uh, would say that, yeah, sometimes there are. There are cases where we have to look at, uh, at emotional factors in addition to rational ones. And Bob, you said before it all comes down to who do you trust? Uh, how do you trust? personally. Who do you trust? Well, again, what I want to see in a court system and a justice system, I want to make sure that the people who are accused of a crime have the greatest protections possible and that they won't be falsely convicted. And And who do I trust? It comes back down to the evidence and, and, and the system of law. I think things are getting a little worse in terms of uh, our justice system because too many of our judges and our political system are including considerations other than the evidence and the facts of cases. They're, they're applying uh, elements of political correctness, elements of, uh, of just what I would regard as, pardon the expression, Jeff, left-wing thinking that I don't think should be entering into a courtroom. Hey, judges are not left-wing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to see, uh, I certainly, we certainly don't want to see politics in the courtroom, and that's unfortunately what, what's happening more and more. And I guess that's a whole show in itself. Gentlemen, thank you. Uh, always a pleasure, and a pleasure again today. And folks, if you've got, speaking of whole shows by themselves, if you've got a topic that you'd like uh, our uh, two representatives of the left and right to address on a given program, don't hesitate to drop us a line. Just say, hey, I'd like to hear what the guys have to say about such and such, and uh, we'll try to bring that to you. Um, tomorrow on the program, don't forget Pierre Burton and uh, some other stellar programming notes for you. But Pierre Burton, don't, don't miss that. He'll be on about 11 o'clock. Um, for Jeff and for Bob and for Ryan and for Don, it's Jim Chapman saying, please take care of each other, mind how you go, and we'll see you tomorrow at 9 o'clock for the next edition of Talk of the Town. Bye for now.